So this morning, we are still on our third discipline ministry. So we're going to be talking a lot about ministry this morning. We're going to take another look at the example of Paul from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, so you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at the example of Paul in ministry from 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, chapter 1. And we saw that living a life of ministry means that the gospel is our message. It's our message. It's what we always look to share with others. And it means being an uncommon messenger with that gospel, displaying God's power and spirit with conviction through gentleness. And it means being an example to others, living lives of repentance, submitting to God, in such a way that we have joy even in the midst of trials. And it's to desire that people actually actually imitate our example. You know, we want to be so effective in our ministry that uh, it's multiplied. Ministry is multiplied, that ministry continues through others, and that we certainly need to pray that God would work through our ministry and that he would raise up others who will speak more boldly and broadly than we do. And to think about the next generation, what God might do even through your little ones. And this is the kind of ministry we aim for, just as Paul did, with a goal of repentance. Ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. And that means we labor for transformation of life. We labor to, to uh, see people become servants of the Lord, to long for Jesus to come. And with that, let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we praise you and thank you that you are a sovereign, unchanging, good, powerful, mighty God. And in your goodness and in your power, you saved us, undeserving rebels. Thank you so much for the gift of salvation. Father, I pray that this morning you would quiet our hearts, you would help us to hear from you as we open up your word. We thank you for your precious word that is powerful to work in our lives. We thank you for a building to meet at and for an opportunity to gather and do just this. Father, we pray for uh, the ministry of Wellspring Kids, that you would bless that ministry, that the women would be encouraged as they have conversations with one another about what you are doing and how you're working in their lives. And then we pray for the women who are teaching these little ones, Father, that their hearts would be changed and there would be evidence of transformation of life in these young little ones. Lord, we commit this morning to you. We love you. We praise you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, well... If we're going to be the kind of women who labor for transformation of heart, for our own hearts and for, other, for others, we must be purposeful, right? That's why Discipline One is so important. It's so crucial. So go ahead and turn your notebooks over, and we're going to look at the disciplines once again. To be effective and purposeful, we must prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God, through his word, and in particular with the gospel. And we're going to be talking a lot about Discipline 1 as we uh, go through the lesson this morning, but I want to remind you of our Wellspring verse. Above all else, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Our prayer is that after this year in Wellspring, you're encouraged you're better equipped, you're motivated to do just that, to guard your heart above all else. And discipline two is about ministering to those in our households with our hearts for God and the gospel. So when we're doing that, when we're guarding our heart above all else, and we're positioning our hearts before his word, when we're refusing to be moved away from being established and steadfast in the gospel, What's going to overflow? It's going to be that. It's going to be the gospel. It's going to be love. It's going to be love for Christ and love for others. We can't help but love one another and serve 
and see the impact of God's grace right there in our household, we'll be more inclined to be purposeful when we step into the lives of our families or anyone else that lives with us or comes into our home with the love of Christ, displaying his transforming work in our lives and having that aroma of Christ there. And, you know, I do hope that you're not tiring of hearing the same thing over and over again, how we are sort of repetitive. It's, we're doing this purposefully. We want to be bringing this before our own hearts and before your hearts on a weekly basis. But, and, you know, if you're anything like me, um, I'm forgetful, and I even need to be reminded of the things I already know constantly, right? We need to be reminded. Um, of these disciplines, to make these disciplines a priority in our lives, making a gospel impact with the ones that God has placed in our homes. Ladies, we must be watchful, we must be careful not to leapfrog over our hearts, over our own hearts first, that's discipline one, and not to leapfrog over our household relationships. And then, we step into ministry um, and into people's lives. That's discipline, tr- discipline three. As we've seen from, from 1 Thessalonians 1, we want to be confident and bold with the right message and concerned to be a certain uh, kind of woman by his grace as he does ongoing uh, powerful work in us. Discipline three, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church and she shepherds others toward the very same thing, God and the gospel. And when we talk about ministry, we're talking about all of life. Ministry is all of life. It's intentional living. It's about living out the gospel in all areas of our life. And what we're aiming for as we gather for Wellspring each week, our purpose, to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with his word so that we live gospel-transformed lives, strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And as I stand here, I am so aware of the fact that I still have uh, far to go in this. I'm growing in these disciplines. It's a lifelong pursuit. You know, I'm standing up here as we hear one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is. And I'm so thankful for all of you who help and encourage me to prioritize my life in light of his word, in light of these disciplines, as, uh, as I aim for transformation of life by his grace. And then I stand here encouraging you to do the same thing. This morning, we're going to see six gospel-centered truths for ministry from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and uh, verses 1 through 12. But for, for context, we're going to look back starting uh, by reading from chapter 1, starting in verse 5. I'm going to try to see this. He says, Paul says, starting in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the, for the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And then our passage this morning. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. 
For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. As you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, on your outline, the first gospel-centered truth for ministry is this, Roman numeral number one, ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. Ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. There's nothing else to put first and most before others. Nothing. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2. He says, uh, You know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You know, if there's ever a time to be tempted to change or tone down or soften the gospel message, don't you think it would have been right after what had just happened? Remember back in Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they were beaten. They were imprisoned unjustly in Philippi. They suffered. He was so mistreated. And even with this kind of mistreatment in Philippi and then much opposition in Thessalonica, he still spoke Boldly, the gospel. Can you imagine that? And I think, um, you know, I, I might have been tempted to just be a little fearful, you know, and shrink back. But they didn't. They were bold. And they continued to speak the gospel amid much opposition. Now, under Roman numeral, wonder, uh, Roman numeral number one, we have three points or observations. And as we engage uh, people with the gospel, a gospel-engaging ministry is, number one, never hollow. A gospel ministry is never hollow. It's never found wanting. That's your fill-in-the-blank. When we're bringing the gospel to people, it's never hollow. It's never wanting. That's what... Paul said in verse 1, he says, Brethren, you know that our coming to you was not in vain. And vain means hollow. It means empty. It means without purpose. Vain means wanting and earnestness. And Paul says, our time, our time with you wasn't empty. It wasn't shallow. Paul's ministry was fruitful. It had a powerful impact. Why? Because he says, we spoke the gospel to you. Anytime we bring the gospel to someone, it's never empty, regardless of their response. It's never empty, regardless of their response. So true gospel ministry is never hollow. It's never found wanting. Now, throughout our outline, you'll see some questions. And these are very challenging questions, but they're for our benefit. They're to help us grow, to be more gospel-engaging in our relationships with one another. These questions are part of your uh, homework this week, and, um, it, but it might be helpful to give some thought to them as we go along. And, you know, I'm just going to say this. I didn't check with you, Chris, but if, these are too, um, if this is too hard to um, turn in, do it on a separate piece of paper. The most important thing is that you evaluate before God's word. Evaluate your heart. 
answer these questions honestly from a, from a heart that wants to change and be more gospel engaging. And if you're not comfortable with turning that in, I'm okay with that. I just want you to do it, right? <laughs> okay. So the first question is this. What will happen to your ministry if the gospel is not central in your relationships? Paul says that we came to you and it wasn't in vain. It wasn't empty. And that was because it was gospel-centered. You know, when we're talking about our great God and about what he is doing in and through us, about repentance, about transformation of life in us and in others, that is not a hollow, empty relationship, right? What's going to happen if that's not happening? If the gospel is not central, what will our relationships be like? They might be hollow, right? They might be kind of empty relationships. Um, can you, can you think of relationships in your life like that? Are you comfortable with those relationships that are empty or hollow, vain, that are not gospel-centered, kind of servicey? i got to tell you, every time I'm posed with this question, I can. I can think of those kinds of relationships in my life, and I want to grow, and I want to be more purposeful in each and every relationship. Number two. Gospel-engaging ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. It requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. Now, this takes us to our first of several sandwiches this morning. And by sandwich, sandwich, I just sounded like my little two-year-old used to say sandwich. You'll see in the verse that there is a top piece of bread and a bottom piece of bread, and these two say almost the same thing. And then in the middle is where you're going to see the meat, um, the nugget of truth that we want to watch for. Um, it's kind of neat to, to see how, this, how, how it looks. So watch in verse 2 how we see the top piece of bread and the bottom piece of bread. Look how verse 2 begins. We already suffered and had been mistreated. And then see how the verse ends? Much opposition. Suffered, mistreated, much opposition. And then look what it says in the middle. You see, we had boldness. The boldness. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. See that? Boldness to speak the gospel surrounded by suffered, mistreated, opposition. Gospel ministry requires us to be bold. Even though opposition might surround us, right? We'll get opposition. And you know, I just can't help but think right now how the world is changing so fast. I'm kind of a news junkie, so I watch world events and what's going on in our, in our world. And Christians are being persecuted and killed for their faith. And um, you may not think that's very near to us, but you know, persecution is coming. And we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. Um, I, I don't want to fear what's, I don't want to fear persecution, whatever kind of persecution comes, but I sure want to be prepared and I sure want to be strengthened more and more um, so we can be confident and we can be bold to speak the gospel, even surrounded by opposition. And the next question, how much trouble exists in our relationships because of the gospel? You know, when I think about trouble in my relationships, it usually isn't because of the gospel. It's usually because of me and because of my sin. In fact, if we are having trouble in our relationships with other believers, it's probably because the gospel is not central. But do you see where there is conflict, where there is tension because of the gospel? You know, what might be some reasons for the absence of trouble? Could it be because of vain and hollow relationships? A lack of boldness or confidence in the power of God? Conflict is not the goal. Okay, conflict and trouble is not the goal. That's not what we're going for. But if we're purposeful, if we're living out the gospel, if we're proclaiming the gospel, we're probably going to have some opposition, don't you think? You know, we live in a dark world that calls the gospel foolishness. So that's just something to give some thought to. Another question to give some thought to, what happens when opposition comes in your gospel ministry or because of the gospel? 
What, would she, what should we do when opposition comes? Are we handling it in a Christ-like way, in a gospel-centered way? Do we know how to handle it? It can be so hard. But I think we've all experienced that um, in some way or another. The question is, are we bowing to his gospel purposes in it? Allowing them to do God's work in us and through opposition and then trusting him for the outcome. Again, just some things to give some thoughts to and evaluate. So, when we are concerned, first and most, with engaging people with the gospel, gospel ministry is never hollow, it's not in vain, it's not found wanting, and gospel-engaging ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. And number three, gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. It finds its boldness in God alone. Paul says in verse 2, we had boldness in our God. And that word boldness, it literally just means all speech. And you know what's really interesting about this word boldness? It's only used in the New Testament in a gospel uh, proclamation kind of setting. It, It means a state of mind where words just flow freely. It's confidence, no restraints. And Paul, he could just freely speak the gospel with confidence regardless of the situation, regardless of opposition or suffering or mistreatment. I just want to be more like that. See, the boldness is in what? It's in our God. The boldness is in our God. It's not in self. That's what he says in verse 2. He says we have boldness and it's in our God. This was not a natural ability to be bold or because he had this bold personality. This freeness of speech, it was in our God. There was such a union between Paul and his God, our God, that he was confident in his union with Christ, that he just freely and boldly spoke. But wait, think about this. What was he surrounded by? Opposition. He was surrounded by opposition. I'm pretty sure that I would have been fearful, you know, and not, and not say anything at all. But not Paul. And you know why? Because conflict and comfort, his circumstances were not impacting his speech. What was impacting Paul's speech? It was God. There was no opposition, no circumstance that would take away his confidence because it wasn't in himself. It wasn't in a situation. It was in his God. What a great reminder for us. So another question, what needs to happen daily to increase our God-given boldness to speak the gospel? Can anyone think of a wellspring discipline? Maybe like one? (laughs) Shepherding our hearts to be near our God, to walk in nearness with him, positioning our hearts before his word living out his presence in our lives. See, because the more aware we are of him, our God, the, the more the gospel is just going to flow, will overflow. And the less concern will be about opposition. And that takes ongoing, lifelong heart shepherding. So do you see why we can't be passive in our time with the Lord? In his word. Discipline one says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. And we have to continually remind ourselves when we're in his word, you know, when our mind starts to wander, no, bring it back. You know, I'm here to meet with you. I'm here to meet with you, God, and to behold the gospel to who God is, to see who God is, to see our sin to confess our sin and to turn and to repent and to see the sweetness and completeness of what Christ has done on the cross for our sin. Remembering his wrath was satisfied. The cup is empty. I am no longer a slave to sin. I need to grow in my understanding of who my God is. And Paul understood this. And he had confidence because he knew his God. My God-given boldness to speak the gospel is going to increase, 
then I must actively shepherd my heart with gospel truths when I read to grow in my knowledge and my awareness for him, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. So I'll be ready, probably not if, but when persecution comes. The second gospel-centered truth for ministry, Roman numeral number two. In gospel-centered ministry, God himself is central. God himself is central. Um, And there are several ways that we see that just in verses 2 through 6. And the first way we see that God is central, number one, God is the origin of our message, and he's the origin um, of our mission. God is the origin of our message and mission. We saw the start of it in verse 2. We had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God, and boldness comes from God, and our message comes from God. And Paul says he spoke the gospel of God. And verse 3 states it negatively. He says, here's where our exhortation does not originate from. He says our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. In verse 6, Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ. So his mission, his ministry as an apostle, it doesn't come from himself, his own ideas, his philosophies. He, he's an apostle of Christ. An apostle means sent one. And you know, we are sent ones as well. We're not apostles, but we're sent ones. An apostle is one who was called by Jesus, like the twelve and uh, Paul. But we certainly are sent ones. We are witnesses. Wherever God places us, in our homes, in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhoods, in Papua New Guinea, in Italy, in Spain, wherever he has us. God is the origin of our message and the origin of our mission. We are sent ones and we belong to Christ. Now, the second way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry, number two, God purifies our exhortations. God purifies our exhortations. Verse three says, for our exhortation, and whether Paul needed to encourage or he needed to admonish, it does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Paul's message was truth. His life was pure. His ministry was honest. It's not deceitful. He was without hypocrisy, without deception. He wasn't motivated by anything other than the gospel. And if our lives are going to be gospel-centered, you know, this must be true of us too. True words, pure lives, honest motives, gospel-centered motives. The third way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry, God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. Kind of sounds scary, doesn't it? But let's take a look at verse 4. Paul says in verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And this brings us to our second sandwich. We see at the beginning of the verse the phrase, Have been approved. And then at the end of the verse is another word, examine. That's the bread, and they actually say the same thing. Actually, it's the same Greek word. It's this word that means um, a testing for the purpose of refining. It was the same word or idea used for purifying metal, to purify for the purpose of refining. The idea, when metal was melted, the piece of metal, it was put to the fire, And as it heated up, all the dross and the impurities and the worthless scum would um, rise up to the top, to the surface. And they would skim all of that, all the impurities off when it would rise up. And they would continue to heat the metal and continue to take off all of those impurities until the one refinate could look in and he could see his own reflection. That would mean that the impurities were out. At that point, it was pure. Now the metal wasn't put to the fire because it was bad metal. And they wanted to destroy it. No. They put it to the fire because they wanted to purify it. The idea with this word, to approve, to examine, it is not the idea to test us, just to show us our failures. 
for the purpose of getting rid of impurities, to purify us so that his reflection can be seen in us. And this is an ongoing, lifelong process. It's a gracious thing that God does. It's a good and positive testing. Is it pleasant? No, it's not always pleasant. It can be really hard, and it can be painful. But it is not for the purpose of destroying us. It's for the purpose of purifying us so that we can be more and more like Christ. It's a very loving thing that our Father does. It's his grace. Even though it may be hard and it may be painful and it may not feel like it at the time. And Paul, he lived as a man who knows that God examines his heart and continues to be purified by God. So that's the bread. Verse 4, starting and ending with the idea of being approved, being tested, examined by God. And then what goes on in between that examination See that in the middle of verse 4? To be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. As believers, we've been entrusted with the gospel. We have. So we too must live as women who know that God, he examines our hearts. And how do we live that way? Again, it's discipline one. We've been entrusted with the gospel. That's why we must know it. That's why we must preach it first and most to our own hearts. The gospel is what prepares us to endure God's refining and benefit from God's refining so that we are more effective, more fruitful as ministers of the gospel. And we want that, right? The fourth way that God is central in gospel ministry, number four, is that God opens my mouth. God opens my mouth. In verse 4, Paul says, as we've been um, entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. If God is influencing us, we can't be silent. We won't be silent. We'll open our mouths and we will speak. The gospel will flow. The next way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry, number five, is that God is the primary audience. God is the primary audience. We saw it already in verse 4 when Paul said, um, We speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And then again in verse 5, For we never came with flattery speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. He says it again in verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God. See, Paul had this awareness that God was present. Just as much as he was aware that Men were watching. He knew God was present. God is the primary audience of Paul's ministry. God's a primary audience in our ministry. He's the only audience that matters. And um, we just can't lose sight of that. What's the next way we see that God is central in gospel ministry? Number six, God drops my mask in ministry. God drops my mask in ministry. Verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Paul was sincere. He didn't flatter. He wasn't manipulative. He wasn't trying to get something. And he wasn't trying to hide anything either. He didn't come with a pretext for greed. Pretext is the idea of hiding true motives. To put on a mask, to cover something up in order to satisfy greed. He didn't do that. He didn't flatter them with a real intent of getting their money, though um, he may have been accused of that. So if God is central, we don't use flattery or put on a mask or cover things up in order to satisfy greed. Now, maybe our greed isn't necessarily money. Maybe it is, but maybe not. Think about some other ways that we might be tempted to be greedy. Maybe it's uh, greedy for approval or acceptance, for compliments, praise, recognition, uh, greedy for control. But he enables us to drop those masks, to drop any kind of self-serving, self-grasping mask and just seek to please (coughs) the Lord. To have a genuine concern for others instead of ourselves. And again, this is about guarding our hearts, the true motives of our hearts. 
The seventh way we see that God is central in gospel-centered ministry is that number seven, God humbles my use of authority. God humbles my use of authority. Now remember, we already saw that God is the primary audience in gospel ministry. Paul said, God's my witness. He's my audience, the only audience that matters. And because of that, if I have any authority as a messenger giving the message of the gospel, it's not about me. God is the primary audience. Paul says in verse 6, Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. He had authority, being an apostle of Christ. Here's Paul. He's seen the risen Lord. He knew it wasn't about him and his authority because God was central in Paul's ministry. He didn't use his authority in a way that would have lorded over them. I think you have a statement on your outline. It's a quote from Scott. He says, any authority I might possess in ministry or anywhere, it's not about me. Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval, pleasure, and witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of our authority for authority's sake. So good. Once again, this is about humility of heart, understanding who I am in Christ. Now, authority is good. It's God-given. And when we're in a role of authority, we certainly need to exercise that authority. But we must do it in a humble, gentle manner for the benefits, benefit of others, not ourselves. That's gospel-centered ministry. So if you're a mom, well, that's going to apply to your parenting, right? In fact, if you have any role of authority, there's a phrase that Paul uses to describe his authority in 2 Corinthians 13.10, if you want to write that down. And it's really helpful. He says that the Lord gave him authority for building up and not for tearing down. Think about where we might be building up and where we might be tearing down. The gospel compels us. It's the power in us that leads us to use authority the way Jesus did. He's our greatest example. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You know, let's turn to Philippians 2. Just be reminded of who our Savior is. Philippians 2. Starting in verse 1. It says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, there's any consolation of love, there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking, on, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's one with all authority in the form of God, and he took on the form of a slave. That's what authority is supposed to do. That's what God does. That's who he is. He's a humble God in Jesus Christ. And when he saves sinners, and he draws us to himself, and he sends us out in his name, well, we're to be humble as well. All right, our third gospel-centered truth, Roman numeral number three. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. It's characterized by a motherly gentleness. Verse 7, he says, But we approve to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And the verse starts off with the word but, meaning there's a contrast, so we need to look back. So let's look, let's look up at verse 6. 
He says, nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority, but we prove to be gentle. Rather than men who might have thrown their weight and authority around, they were gentle like a tender nursing mother. It's a stark contrast. They were men with authority. And he says, we were like a gentle nursing mother. A nursing mother. She either brings her baby or little one to the level, uh, up to her level, or she, she gets down to the level of her child. She makes herself available in a tender way. And Paul says, we were like that with you. We were like that with you. We made ourselves available to you. We met you where you were. It's a strong expression coming from this manly man, Paul. He's going to extreme lengths to show his commitment to gentleness and to care for their needs as babes in Christ. And moms, do you see how you can apply this to parenting? You know, Paul's example is so helpful and it's so impactful as we parent or grandparent. We too can get down to their level. Seek to understand them. We humble ourselves. We remember our own struggle with sin and what Christ has done for us. As we confess sin, when we sin against them, instead of throwing authority around, we come alongside them. We bring the gospel to them like a gentle, tender mother. The gospel is the milk they need what changes us, right? It's what nourishes us. And it's what others need for nourishment, too. That's gospel ministry for all of us, to really try to understand those you're caring for at their level. So here's a question, and I'm sorry I didn't put it on your outline. So I run and write it down. At the end of the day, do you identify more with a gentle, tender nursing mother or as someone who's throwing authority around. Ouch. Do you identify more with a gentle, tender nursing mother or as someone who's throwing authority around? Gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. And our greatest example is Jesus. Here's another question. How well do you step into others' lives to build them up? Are there any new believers in your life that you can nurture? You know, what about your children? Maybe women coming to our church or small group, new to our body, maybe new to the Lord. And we have a privilege of reaching out to them with gentle, even motherly care, getting on their level to bring them in, welcoming them and nourishing them with the gospel too. And I just got to say, you guys are examples to me because I see so many of you doing this as you parent and as you care for the body. And I can learn so much from you. But as I examine my heart here, I encourage you to do the same. The fourth gospel-centered truth, a gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. Nothing less than deep affection for people. Let's look at verse 8. He says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So do you see the sandwich already? Let's take a look at the top piece of bread. Look at how verse 8 starts. Had, he had fond affection for them. And then how does it end? They were very dear to him. Both parts basically say the same thing. And then um, that's the bread, fond affection, very dear. And then what's in the middle? What's the meat? It says, we were well pleased to impart the gospel and our lives. So for the bread, he says, you were so dear to us. We loved you. He didn't even know these people uh, before he got there. He was on the run from Philippi after being beaten. And as he ministers to them, even though he was there for just a short time, the gospel produced in him a love and an affection for them. Remember back in verses 1 and 2, remember how Paul said that the gospel came. He says that it wasn't in vain. We had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. 
He had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. He was relentless. He had a boldness in the proclamation of the gospel for sure. But then we get to verse 8, and we see this fond affection. Paul says, you've become so dear to us. We wanted to impart to you not only the gospel, um, but also our own lives. These two, boldness and affection, they go together. They go together. They're never disconnected. There's gospel content and there's gospel care. That's how I like to think of it. Gospel content and gospel care. Personal involvement. And we need to give both. Our goal is to give people the good news of the gospel, right? We must give others the content of the gospel without compromise. But that should never be disconnected from a caring relationship with people. And we all probably tend to lean toward one or the other, you know, our favor one to the exclusion of the other. Some of us are very focused on being sure we give out the gospel, you know, without necessarily uh, being as much concerned with how we give it. You're going to hear this content of the gospel regardless, with no affection for them. Have you ever done that? Anyone? I have. Well, some of us might be more on the relational side. You know, we might be inclined to think, I need to build up this very strong relationship. I need to show the love of Christ, which we do. But never get around to sharing the content of the gospel. Well, I've done that too. Now, there is something to building relationships, for sure. But if I'm not concerned to give them the content of the most important message, the only hope they may ever hear, well, that's not really loving. And that's not what Paul was doing. See, it's both. We give the gospel and we give ourselves. We impart our lives. And this is how we minister to one another as well. We all need gospel content. I need to hear that today. And we all need gospel care in order to build up the body. So here's a question for you. How is our effectiveness with the gospel, or how is our effectiveness with the gospel impacted by the level or absence of affection for one another? You know, is it easier for you to bring the gospel to people you do have an affection for, but not to those that may be just kind of annoyances in your life? Paul was concerned to give gospel content for sure, but we see he was also concerned, very concerned, for gospel care. And we don't want to sacrifice one for the other. We want to strive. We want to strive to bring the content of the gospel and gospel care to others together so that there's never a distance between them, that they happen simultaneously as we care for one another. Fifth, gospel-centered truth. Number five, a gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. Keeps the path to the gospel clear. Verse nine, in verse nine he says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim the gospel of, uh, of God. His main point is we proclaim to you the gospel of God. But then he says, remember that there was labor and there was hardship and we worked night and day. Why? He says, because we didn't want to be a burden. We didn't want to be a burden. He's probably talking about a financial burden as a frontier missionary. Paul's the first Christian going into this area with the gospel. And most often in those settings, Paul's practice was not to take any money until they were more established, until the church was formed. And then, you know, if they wanted to give him a gift, he would usually accept those gifts. But at this point, in Thessalonica, he didn't accept any financial assistance because he didn't want to be an obstacle to the gospel. He wanted a clear path for bringing the gospel to them. And to do that, well, they had to, there's a lot of labor and hardship. In fact, he says they worked night and day. It's kind of interesting that he says night and day. Most likely, they would begin working either early in the morning or halfway through the night, you know, and they'd work into part of the day in order to have the rest of the day to minister to the people 
and minister the gospel and have time with them. So they probably didn't sleep much. But they did that to keep a clear path. He didn't want them to feel a burden. And there are times when we're ministering to others that we will need to make sacrifices in order to make a clear path for the gospel. You know, ministry requires sacrifice. It just does. So here's another question for you. One way we could apply this. Can you recall how an older, wiser believer personally made sacrifices so you could keep growing in the gospel? For whom will you seek to do the same? As you think about those that have sacrificed for you, think about the second question. For whom will you do the same? Start to pray that you would be the older, wiser Christian woman who can come alongside another woman who is younger in her faith. And again, you know, it's so evident that I see so many of you doing this. So many of you being intentional in ministry. All right, the last gospel-centered truth, number six. A gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy of God. The goal is transformation of life that's worthy of God. And that takes us to our last sandwich. And this time it's between verses 10 and 12. And verse 11 is the meat. It's what's in the middle that we don't want to miss. So let's take a look at verse 10. He says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Now, whose life is Paul describing in verse 10? Anyone? He's describing his own, right? He's describing his own life there. Paul lived a life that was above reproach. He lived devoutly blamelessly and uprightly. And then let's look at verse 12, the bottom piece of bread. He says, so that you, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom. So here in verse 12, whose life is he talking about? He's not talking about Paul. He's not talking about his life, but he's talking about the Thessalonians' transformed lives. See, in verse 10, we have the messengers, the sent ones. They have transformed lives. And then in verse 12, the ones they were ministering to, who believed, do you see what they must have? Transformed lives. So gospel ministry is all about changed lives, about transformation of life. Life on life with the gospel. So our changed lives labor for changed lives lives and others' lives. It's not gospel-centered ministry if it's not interested in transformation of life. So there are your two pieces of bread. Now let's look at uh, verse 11. He says, We were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. See, they had this fatherly pursuit. That's what Paul sandwiched in between transformation of life. He says, We had a fatherly pursuit of your changed life, of your transformation of life. So the primary goal in gospel-centered ministry is always changed lives. And the way Paul describes the way he pursued and labored for their changed lives is by comparing himself to a father. After his own children. He says, each one of you, he's emphasizing individual care. As Paul thinks back on his ministry... He remembers that he had spent time with each one of them. Like a father spends time with each one of his children. Father needs to shepherd each one of his children in a unique way, according to the need of the moment. Sometimes, verse 11, we see it's an exhortation. Sometimes it's more of a gentle encouragement. Other times a father is imploring his child with the gospel. Let's turn over to chapter 5. Let's look at chapter 5, verse 14. He actually says something very similar here. And remember, Scott Demarest taught on this verse back a few weeks ago. But he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. It's a very individualized ministry. We need to have an individualized ministry. Personal, thoughtful approach in each relationship. For example, unruly people 
do need to be warned. Maybe not so much encouraged at that moment, but warned in a soft kind of way. But we don't want to admonish someone if they're faint-hearted, if they're faint-hearted. And we need to labor to know the difference. It takes prayer and it takes time together and careful listening so that we can understand what's going on in each other's lives. We cannot make assumptions. We can't make assumptions. You know, if I make an assumption, I might first think, you know, my friend is unruly and I need to warn her. But when I take time and I ask questions, listen carefully, you know, I may begin to realize, you know, I have no idea what's going on in her life. If she shares her heart with me, I might discover what she really needs is encouragement. She needs encouragement with the gospel. She needs to be encouraged, not admonished. There's a difference, and we need to labor to know the difference. Sometimes we do need to get both encouragement and admonishment. Always, always, always with patience. I know for me, my first response isn't always thanking, thankful for the help someone's offering me. But as they encourage me and remind me of biblical truths in the gospel, by his grace, my heart may soften. And if it doesn't, well, I probably need to be admonished. And I'm thankful for those who bear with me and help me and drive me to that level ground at the cross. Now let's talk about assessing a need. When we talk about assessing a need, ours or anyone else's, this is not something that is based on feeling or based on emotion, um, or something we think we have the right to. You know, like, girl, you just need a vacation. It's not that kind of need, right? Rather, when we think of needs, as in what does this person need, it's helpful to think along the lines of Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. And that means building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So, when we're thinking about how to give grace to someone, it's to build them up in their faith. It's going after that transformation of life that Paul was so concerned with. That is the need we are concerned with first and most. And then how we deliver that grace as admonishment for the unruly or as encouragement for the faint-hearted or help for the weak is determined according to the need of the moment. Does that make sense? So gospel-centered ministry will always have a personal component, and that's how we help one another grow in sanctification. That's how Paul ministered to the Thessalonians. He says, we're exhorting some of you, we're encouraging others, we're imploring others, like a father does with each one of his kids, and that's how we help one another grow in sanctification. All right, let's look at verse 12 again. He says, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we're going to come back and we're going to finish with this verse. But I want to point out what um, God does. Do you see that? God calls you. He's not emphasizing here when God called you in the past tense, your conversion. God calls you is in the present tense. It means that God is continuing to call you into his own kingdom. It's true, God already transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now, he's continually calling us into greater and greater knowledge and realization of him. His kingdom reign over our lives. God is tenderly calling us as a father saying, you know, come on my child. You need to see more. You need to know more. You need to experience more of my own kingdom reign in your life. It's an amazing God. He's walking with us. He's continually calling us. He's not done with us. We must still be called into greater and greater alignment with his will. And he won't stop until he's done. That's how great our God is. All right, so how do we conclude this? What's the bigger picture 
of gospel-centered ministry. If we had to sum it all up, what would we say? Here it is. This is the inseparable combination in gospel-centered ministry. Number one, it's proclamation. Proclamation. And then number two, down below on your outline, is demonstration. If, if we're going to have a gospel-centered ministry, we have to be about the proclamation of the gospel. Paul was all about proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the gospel. And you see all the references there on your outline? Gospel-centered ministry is going to make believers open their mouth and actually pro- proclaim Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners. And a gospel-centered ministry is not going to stop there. If we learn anything from 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, it's that Paul didn't come in word only. We have to join the word being proclaimed with the word being lived out, demonstrated. That's the second point. Paul equally emphasized life on life ministry. His gospel ministry was about one life engaging another. You see that under point two, number two, demonstration, and the references there on your outline. So it's clear here in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 that if we're going to have a gospel-centered ministry, we need to open our mouths and we need to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, the wonderful truths of the gospel and all that it is. That's why we had you write out the gospel and then work on it again and know it. That's why we gave you the resources that we gave you to grow in that. Grow in the knowledge of the gospel. So we proclaim and we must be engaged in others' lives. That's what we mean by demonstration. Paul did that. He was intentional. And our greatest example of all is Jesus. He is the greatest proclaimer and the greatest demonstrator. So the last question for you this morning. How would you rate your own life on this combination Where are you strong? Where are you weak? Why? What must happen to grow? What must uh, happen to grow in this? Good question. Now, I said that we would come back to verse 12. And we see that it starts with, so that. It's the whole reason why Paul did what he did. Here's the ultimate motive in ministry. That's the blank on your outline. The ultimate motive in ministry. It's why he was so concerned to proclaim and to demonstrate. It's why he did all the things we saw in chapter 1. It's why he was concerned to have the right message, to be an uncommon messenger, to be imitatable, to be effective, to labor for repentance. And it's why his ministry was concerned with what we've seen this morning in 1 Thessalonians 2. Gospel-centered ministry engages people with the gospel. It's not hollow. It requires boldness, even if there's opposition. Gospel-centered ministry finds its boldness in God alone. He is central as the origin of our message and our mission. Gospel-centered ministry has pure motives, and he tests us to entrust us with the gospel. And we can be confident it's for the purpose of purifying us out of his love for us to be conformed to the image of his son by his grace he opens our mouth he's our primary audience and he calls us and he enables us to drop our masks the gospel compels us it's the power in us that leads us to use authority the way Jesus did as a humble servant it's why he had motherly gentleness and deep affection for people it's why he was willing to sacrifice and take on hardship it's why he labored for transformation of life it's why he did what he did what was the ultimate motive in ministry verse 12 so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the god who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So that's the result of the gospel. 
That's why God, in his holiness and his love, provided a way through his son for sinners to be reconciled to himself. That's the power of the gospel that transforms God-haters into those who would walk worthy of him. And you know what? We participate. We participate in God's gospel transformation in our lives by shepherding our hearts with the gospel, with God's word, so we can be a servant, a slave of the gospel in our homes, in our church, and in the world. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer, that we would be so concerned for transformation of life, that we would be so concerned to be gospel, uh, uh, that we would declare the gospel, that we would speak the gospel, and that we would demonstrate the gospel to those around us. I pray, Lord, that we all would leave here motivated more and more to be the kind of Uh, witness that you call us to be and that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel as we proclaim and demonstrate in our home and in the church and in the world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.